We're losing social skills, the human interaction skills, how to read a person's mood, to read their body language, how to be patient until the moment is right to make or press a point. This quote comes from Vincent Nichols. I'm Raleigh. And I'm Danielle. And this is Unstuck, the special ed podcast. What's up, Raleigh? What's up, Danielle? We're on location. We are on location. Let's introduce our guest right away because we're on location at her house. We're on location with with a few dogs as well that may want to chime in with an opinion or a, you know, perspective. That's true. Which is relevant. Perspective will be relevant today a little bit as well in our topic. That's true. But yes, we have with us Elisa, who is a speech and language pathologist. I've been wanting to be on the podcast for a long time. This is very exciting. Well, we're glad that we could, uh, you know, accommodate you today. We've been excited. As you accommodate us. (laughs) (laughs) We all accommodate each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Raleigh, we're talking about social pragmatics today. I think a topic all three of us are really passionate about. Mm -hmm. I mean, Elisa, it's your life. Um, (laughs) But for us, we, I think, found a love for it with our passion for kids with autism. Mm -hmm. So... Yep, and this is part of a huge piece of the programming that, you know, we created and obviously in a very um, sub-separate private programming for kids with pretty complex needs, but this was something that we definitely found was a missing piece that kids were not getting explicit social coaching and social um, education, and it was it's something that I think people aren't getting enough of, kids aren't getting enough of this in other places, that really explicit social teaching is missing, and... I do think the aspect of, dare I say, social media and internet time and technology is taking away from some of those that skill building. I don't know how you feel about that, Elisa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think it's it's an area where there's been kind of this culture shift, it seems, um, over the past few years. I know um, things seem a lot different than when I was in school as a kid. Um, you didn't talk out of turn. You didn't um, call adults by their first name. You definitely didn't call them bruh. Um, <laughs> something I hear a lot these yeah. days. Um, and so I think... Everybody's a surfer these days. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Um, so I think from my perspective as an SLP, um, working with kids in this area, um, sometimes it's hard to tell what the norms actually are now. Um And then, of course, there's, like, an interaction between the social pragmatic piece and kids with um, social emotional uh, impairments, kids with ADHD and executive functioning impairments and where that kind of comes into play um, because those things are so tightly interwoven with the social pragmatics. But I think there is a difference between that stuff and an underlying pragmatic language disability yeah it's a great is, point it is a good point is there a, do you see a difference from like when you first started your work as an SLP even you know as far back yeah. as you want to go to now put pre-covid post-covid however you want to yeah um I mean so I'm only five years into the field um so I'm not new new but I'm certainly not as seasoned as some other SLPs out there um I think post-covid I know we got or during COVID even, we got a ton of referrals um, at the therapeutic school that Raleigh and I work at. Um, I think some kids had a really hard time being home for so long and some were home longer than others. Um, So I think some kids definitely missed out on a lot of opportunities to build those skills organically. Um, So now I feel like some kids were kind of 
catching them up, so to speak, on what they missed. Well, especially the kids that were, say, like, into kindergarten at that age are now, you know, what are we saying, maybe they're third grade now, second, third grade. So they've, they, they missed some of that foundational learning with peers. Um, I also think, and, and, you know, you can obviously chime in on this as well, I think that something I've noticed a lot that's missing, and I think it's not a big secret, is like that ability to resolve conflict and negotiate with other kids and kind of solve things within, uh, you know, two, two kids or multiple kids kind of figuring things out and solving things socially. And I totally agree where you have the kids who need that that intensive work to really recognize body language cues, tone of voice, understanding and reading the room and reading the situation. But then you have the kids that maybe are more neurotypical who are still missing. How do you interact with somebody? And then that piece of emotion, that emotional aspect that you spoke about, the anxiety comes in. I'm too anxious to resolve mm-hmm. this with this person, or I don't know what to do. And that makes me anxious. And then I withdraw or then I'm reacting emotionally to the situation and so it is important to tease it out and I think you know you definitely have students on your caseload that have both Mm -hmm. or one or the other um that it is a different way of looking at it and then you know we think about like social thinking and how that shout out Michelle Garcia winner always but where that comes into play as well well I think to your to all of that point then you get the words the word bullying when it's really an inability Ooh, or word. in That's the uh, and a misunderstanding about how to interact and how to intervene with those like social differences. Mm-hmm. And part of that to like the COVID point, kids weren't out at the playground navigating their right. own place or, you know, during COVID. And I'm sure we're really confused if they were younger about why they couldn't go out and play with their friends. So, but the bullying piece, I feel like I hear all the time and it's like, is it? Well, <laughs> let's right. break it and, down. And that's a tough one because I think there are individuals who are going to jump to that conclusion and then it's teasing that part out and trying to, you know, collaborate and manage, um, co- you know, collaborative problem solve the situation without it being something that gets blown up bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think too, like being, like I said, in a therapeutic school, um, it can be really hard to differentiate. I mean, I don't see, I personally, I, I haven't really seen any cases where we're like, yes, this is bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like, okay, we understand this child has PTSD or they, you know, they have whatever disability. Um, so I think in our environment, it's more, um, I don't know, we're more understanding of different possibilities of what we like could be seeing I guess whereas I don't know what that's really like in a public school yeah I think it well it's interesting because in the public school I think it's way more prevalent and I think it's taken not more seriously that's the wrong that's the wrong word but like it's taken to an another level it feels like when you're there because the I think the parental involvement and I think the students who are not on IEPs are mostly the kids, especially at the middle school level. Like elementary, you'll see it once in a while, like a misunderstanding, and then the parents, you know, don't know what's going on day to day, so they're hearing this coming home, and they're advocating, and then it just becomes this, like, big deal. I think in middle school, what we're seeing is these kids who are now into new, more nuanced relationships, they're not so straightforward, trying to navigate that um, and not having, like, an IEP or, or like, a 504 plan. So these neurotypical quote-unquote kids are um, 
saying that they're being bullied when really I think it's just like social coaching that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And I don't think general education teachers know how to look for that Mm -hmm. or know how to coach that in the moment. What are some things um, that you would be, if someone kind of raised a flag about a kid, what's something you might be looking to observe about that child to think about next steps for speech and language services? That's a great question. Um, So for me, when I hear concerns about a kid and I go in to do my observations, I'm thinking about when is it that they seem to be having trouble socially? Is it always during peer conflicts or when they don't get their way or when there's an expectation they don't like? Or is it, you know, are they having a hard time starting conversations? Do they know how to um, join into a conversation or a play activity that's ongoing? Can they leave interactions appropriately? Um, when when they are starting conversations with people, are they taking perspective about what the other person they want to talk about? Or are they just kind of focusing on themselves? Um, so if it's a kid where they seem more reactive, it's more you know an emotional response that I seem to be seeing, those are the kids I tend to look at and say, mm, maybe they don't need speech and language. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, those other difficulties I talked about where they're more at baseline and it, it presents more, um, this isn't the most professional way to say it, but socially awkward, mm-hmm. I guess, um, that, that kind of raises some flags to me. The that, quirky, the quirky yeah, ones. Yeah, the quirky mm-hmm. ones. <laughs> um, and we, we love that quirkiness so much, but it can't, you know, other kids aren't always as understanding, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and also these kids tend to gravitate towards adults a lot of the time, the yes. kids with Prague's Great challenges. Um, and then of course too, if they have a diagnosis of autism or if they have um, some traits about them that are kind of autism-like, uh, even if they don't have a formal diagnosis, um, or and or if they have like a language disorder, if they have um, a cognitive disabil- disability, um, then they're more likely to have an actual underlying pragmatic language-based keyword language (laughs) um, (laughs) disorder rather than just the emotional disability or executive functioning or whatever else could be going on. What are some of the ways that you provide service delivery to address that? So what would you be doing like within a, and maybe things that are, you know, it doesn't have to just be what we do in our really highly specialized setting, but what would Mm -hmm. you, how, how would you best be providing those services maybe for kids, um, regardless of the setting, if that's possible to. Yeah, um, I think so. The first thing I kind of think about is what's the least amount of support that this student may need to to get what they need to be able to to navigate social situations in their environment. So um, first, I kind of think about accommodations and things that I can provide indirectly. Um, So that could be like a visual support that we put on their desk that reminds them to read the room or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, It could be consulting with the classroom team and just checking in about you know what's going well for the student what are some challenges they're having and what kind of techniques can I impart to them to then use with the student um, and then based on like my evaluation or, or what I, whatever I'm seeing if I think they need a little bit more than that um, I'll kind of make the judgment call to recommend um, a direct service whether that's a push-in in the classroom where I go spend time with the student in class um, and provide some social coaching. Um, it could be that I pull students to my office, ideally in a duo or a trio, so they have those opportunities to interact with other kids in a smaller environment where it might not feel as intimidating, um, especially if it's a peer that 
they know mm -hmm. um, and feel comfortable with. That can be, um, I, I tend to have like the most um, frequent organic opportunities that just things that tend to come up like if we're playing a game we have to decide who goes first how do we solve that problem um which that can be a really big problem yeah. it can be yeah or god forbid if you lose the game yeah they lose the game <laughs> yes. Losing that's games. a big one size of the reaction yep. yeah <laughs> yeah um but i think all schools at this point probably could benefit from Im implementing some um some curricula to that every kid can have access yes. to whether Agreed. it's yep. you know maybe the SLP comes in to the classroom and teaches a social skills group once a week um if they're you know if the scheduling allows for that or it doesn't have to be necessarily an SLP counselors can also um provide some similar kinds of um lessons mm -hmm. even teachers like if, if an SLP could consult with a teacher and say here are some lesson plans you could use or um you know, here are some, some topic ideas. If you want to teach about this this week, I noticed your class is struggling with this, that kind of thing. Yeah, those are all, like, I think, too, those are really good points because it is a huge missing piece in in your typical classrooms. So I think in a therapeutic setting or in a special, highly specialized setting, or even within a special ed classroom, you find that there there's more collaboration with the speech and language pathologist because the special educator knows what to ask, yes. how to ask, but like in a classroom setting, and I also think there's, you know, I think you have a highly specialized degree to help support kids across the board in mm -hmm. speech and in language. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think, you know, an adjustment counselor could do more of that general education um, coaching that you're talking about, but that doesn't happen in schools. Mm -hmm. Like teachers, I mean, counselors or speech and language don't go into classrooms to teach or to even work with teachers on what they can implement in a in a classroom in an ELA class on a Tuesday, That's like a really how they could missing piece. Yeah, how they could use a seventh grade text to bring in some of those questions around social norms and social um, and and how to resolve social conflict. Like I don't think that happens a lot in English language arts. I think is like a perfect place for that yeah. because you have all those books. Well, it's a it's a big part of reading comprehension yeah. mm -hmm. too and writing um, the the ability to kind of take perspective. Um, and understand different characters' points of view and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, what you were saying before, Danielle, um, gave me another idea of, of what people could be doing if they're not already. Um, SLPs could consult with not only classroom teachers, maybe like gym teachers mm -hmm. or um, music teachers or other, you know, other specialists who, when they have a group come into their room, um, maybe they have some little techniques or reminders that they give kids um, before they start their lesson. Because those, those kinds of special art class, you know, all of that, um, I think there's a lot of organic opportunities to kind of work on things and, and for for people to give that coaching to kids who need it. When we talk about the lack of carryover, kids really struggle with that, that piece of it oftentimes. So one-on-one -on -one with you or maybe with one peer, they can get the skill and show the skill. But when it's now generalized to a different setting, that's the challenge. So making sure that everybody on the team is involved in understanding what might work. And it doesn't have to be invasive and intensive, but it can just be there's a visual you provide. There's a way you preview, way you prompt. Um, yeah, even the, like I call it thinking out loud, kind of like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm noticing that you want to use the red paint, but someone else is using the red mm, paint. It's really good. What should we do? Hmm, maybe like we can ask them to use it when they're done, mm -hmm. or maybe we just wait until they're finished and, and we kind of observe them until they're done and 
when the time is right, you go get the red paint, you know, whatever it is. Um, there's so many little things. I think, you know, Raleigh, you and I do subconsciously because we're it's so second nature to us being yes. in the type of school that we're in. But um, I can see how in the gen ed setting, people might not... Um, have the idea to to do things little things that we're doing that would be so simple to yeah. implement well and they don't get the teaching to right. do that exactly. like their their education if you're a gym teacher isn't like you have to take this one class on and all the sam- examples you're providing are really helpful for there's simple things that aren't a lot of work for edu- general educators who don't have right. a specialized it can just training be a way that you say something yep. how you phrase it how you're asking, I mean, even when we talk about like the think about me, like when I learned that from social thinking, it was, it blew me away how kids responded to that. And it was such a simple thing to say, instead of pay attention, it was think about me and it worked immediately. Or eyes on me. Eyes on me. Kids never understood like what that actually meant. I think another area that's challenging for these social pragmatic things that happen aside from like the emotional piece too, but is when is, when a student's tested, oftentimes I it seems like they're getting average scores. So if there's no observation or anything, I feel like that's a big component that's missing. And so people are like, oh, they're average. They don't need the explicit instruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, like you said, there, there's a difference between knowing and being able to do in mm-hmm. the moment. Yep. Um, so I know when I do my testing, I always start with the structured stuff just to get a sense of what they actually do know. Um, and then from there, I think what's crucial is the observational piece. Um, just seeing the student in class, um, if you can catch them at a very social time of the day, like lunch or gym class or recess or anything like that, that's the best. But also seeing them in class is great because um, there's different expectations, obviously, in each each of those settings. Um, sometimes I'll have teachers um, meet with me and fill out something called a pragmatics profile or do any kind of checklist. Um, so the Prags profile I use a lot. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with it, but <laughs> it's really good at um, breaking down some of those skills. It lists like 50 different pragmatic language skills, verbal and nonverbal. Um, and you sit down with the teacher or you know anyone from the classroom team and rate how often the student does each one of those skills in a, a culturally appropriate manner. Um, and so I know when I go to look at that profile later, there are certain items where the emotional kids um, or the you know kids who have ADHD or whatever it is, they tend to score lower on those items and everywhere else they're fine. Um, whereas the kids who have a true pragmatic language deficit, they're going to definitely have some strengths. You know, every kid has their strengths socially, um, but they're going to be kind of low across the board and have difficulties in other areas too. Um, So every single part is important. The structure testing, the observation, and um, if you can do some kind of like checklist or anything to to measure um, those observations that you're that you're taking in the classroom. Um, Those that listen to this podcast know that I've been on my soapbox about sensory regulation and different ways that we can accommodate for students needs without always having to go from you know look at this kid to test this kid to take this kid onto your caseload do you feel like there are a lot of ways you can intervene in a I think about it as a less restrictive way of service delivery that you can intervene for students before needing to take them away from curriculum and away from day-to-day activities yeah absolutely I mean um 
our school doesn't use it, but I think an RTI approach yes, can agreed. be super, super helpful um, just to see if with a little bit of intervention, do they get better and does it kind of click um, or maybe they're still struggling after a little bit of intervention. Then we say, OK, maybe we need to take things a step further and see how they do um, and wherever they stop needing, you know, wherever they, they start to make progress is where you stop um, the level of intervention that they're needing so that they're ideally just getting the least amount that they need to be successful and not we're not overkilling by pulling the kid out of class twice a week when they really don't need that. Right. And I think, you know, we talk, we've had people, we've had questions about service delivery come up for people. And I think this is, you know, a piece of that obviously is what's the appropriate type of service delivery to provide? How long do you provide it for? I think, you know, we specifically have talked about getting kind of caught in a, you know, it's almost like it can never end once it starts. And I think there's a lot of education that still needs to happen for parents, teachers, districts about how the progress that students are making is something we should be celebrating. And it means that we are looking to, to kind of reduce if we need to, increase if we need to, change if we need to, but that there is a method to our madness that we aren't just, we're pulling the rug out and saying, good luck, we're not giving you anything to accommodate you in the future, that we're really thoughtful about what is necessary for students. And I love an RTI model because I do think as kids are, especially young kids coming through school for the first time, some kids are just not ready to be students yet. They're really learning all of the basics and that can look like social pragmatic deficits that can look like, you know, challenges reading social cues. It might be, but it might just be that their brain was a little slower to catch up to what, you know, how to be a student. And once they have that practice and experience, they're ready for it. They don't need to now come out of class twice a week to a separate space and learn some skills that they may just need a little bit of practice with in the environment. Well, and at least I think you said it earlier too about the emotional component. Sometimes it's not about, they have the skills to, the social pragmatic skills. Sometimes they just, it's like an emotional piece. Mm -hmm. And that's to me where your counseling department comes into yes. play. They yep. need to do those lunch bunches, those more emotionally based groups on how your behavior affects other people in a way that, you know, when you have these emotions, here's how, well, I don't know. You and I have talked a lot, Danielle, about the team and having a team and having that collaboration for multiple parties. It's so critical. You could almost argue at some point that the social emotional learning is more important than some of the other concepts kids are learning in school. Certainly don't want to take away from fractions because we need that. That. But the social emotional learning is so underserved that that aspect of it needs to be, you know, increased and has to have multiple people addressing it, I think, to be successful. Well, in your thorough testing, Elisa, or like even your the observations, all of those pieces, you can actually clearly in those moments, I'm guessing, likely define what's a social prag deficit. You were talking about like yep. ADHD and all the different yep. like using that as feedback for counseling for general educators or classroom teachers to like use some of that data that you collect to help mm -hmm. with accommodations in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time um, when I'm testing kids and I'm deciding they don't need the service or I'm about to discharge a student from a service um, for social pragmatics, um, I'll say to the family or whoever's in the meeting, um, they, they don't need me, but they can certainly continue to benefit from a counselor, a mental health professional, um, from accommodation, you know, these other things that can support the emotional piece because um, it's not always a pragmatics thing. Yeah. Well, from a related service world in general, mm -hmm. I feel yeah. like 
people automatically jump to what's on the service delivery and like what's the c-grid service that you need what's the pull-out service that you need what's the direct instruction that you need when really there's a lot of things that should go in place first well it's just the experts too i think that we've we became sort of like nebulous where everybody knows every a little bit of everything and it's like trust the experts you know you you say you're only in this for five years at least i will claim that you're an expert um i was told once a long time ago five years of doing the same you know being being a professional being a therapist is making you an expert um when you have that expertise and that nuance and that ability to really hash out different aspects of language different aspects of the pragmatic piece and also you know articulation and those other aspects that you do work with kids on i mean there are kids that have articulation goals and that's a separate piece mm-hmm. you're you know you have the training and the experience to make those decisions and it's trusting that you're doing right by kids and involving the team is i think a great way to show people that that's what we're doing is when it's like this is a parent thing this is involving other you know staff in, in a school setting it's not just you and a kid and that's it and it's it's very isolated because nobody you know carryover is not going to happen in a vacuum so yeah and that's across the board I you think. can make a shirt out of that one by the I way will. okay <laughs> carryover is not going to happen in a vacuum that is that a little too long that well i'll, I'll, I'll work on it small i'll work on it yeah um, and then I'm going to get an actual vacuum cleaner and put it on there. And then that's, <laughs> that's great for kids that are literal, right? Yes. Yeah. The double okay. meaning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Look, at, look at that. That's yeah. perfect. And mic drop Put it on the shirt. <laughs> yep. On that note, Aliza, <laughs> any last words for, or pieces of advice for classroom? I'm thinking more of like classroom teachers who yes. don't yeah. have that expertise. Yeah. I think just, um, like Raleigh said, trust your, your specialists and your professionals and, um, just be open to collaboration and having conversations about what we're seeing. Cause you know, you could go to an SLP and say, Oh, this kid's having trouble with social problem solving. I think they need speech. And the SLP is going to say to you, okay, well, what does that look like when mm-hmm. he's having a hard time with social problem solving? Um, so just, just being open to having those conversations, I think is the biggest thing. If you're not sure where to start. I also mm-hmm. would say that accepting you know, little, like sometimes it could be the smallest strategy is going to make a difference. Sometimes it is just a visual. It's putting the schedule on the board. Mm-hmm. It's on, it's having, you know, a, I love, we don't do this enough, but the oops, things happen board. And again, mm-hmm. shout out to mm-hmm. social thinking, but you know, having a little whiteboard that says, Oh, you know, Elisa's out today. You won't have speech. Like just these little things that aren't going to, you know, involve a lot of effort and a lot of pre-planning, but it's just giving little visual cues to remind kids of maybe what's happening, you know, especially kids with autism love to know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. Giving them that relieves the anxiety that may help them get through the day or just having little charts or checklists or things that are going to help them. That may be enough, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on the kid's brain and how, where they're at. So. Um, and a, that's a perfect segue. Just kidding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, so I have a would you rather. And I feel like I created, I found one that was a little social praggy for us. Oh, perfect. Ooh. Look at you. Relating um, things to other things. Oh, I'm trying. I don't know if this, it's like loosely connected. Okay. Um, well, we'll be the judge of that. Would you rather date or hang out with someone who won't stop talking or date slash hang out with someone who won't stop texting? Mm. Hmm. Elisa, would you like to go first? That's a really tough one. I think probably won't stop texting because then I can answer on my own time and not feel like I have to respond right away and be on all the time for them. I'm going to agree with you because I know people who can't stop talking and I know that I don't like to be around them for very long. Mm. 
So uh, I would say the texting, because what this doesn't tell you is whether they're texting and still thinking about you. Now, those that know me know that I get a little frustrated if I feel like you're not focused on what I'm asking you or talking to you about in the moment. But if you're texting and following the conversation, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. So, yeah, because I took the question as like, while while you're there with the person, yeah, they're, they're texting. texting. I mean, right? I think that's every human right now. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I would rather have someone texting the whole yeah, time. Of course. Like I can't mm-hmm. handle people. I whatever. If you're texting, yeah, I'm assuming you're listening. I don't know. Doesn't we we agree to disagree on like, that one. <laughs> But like the talking, man. yeah, Whew. yeah. I, I don't think it's I'd hard be to be legit. on all the time. Yeah, yeah. and I, active I listening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, as, as those of us who active listen, it's a part-time job. Yeah, so. you're really you're really tired by the end yeah, of the. Yeah, it's a lot of energy. Um, well, thank you, Elisa, for joining us. This was really great. Thank I think people are gonna. Me be really excited about this episode. I think people are going to bump us up from 4.4 to 4.5. Yeah, this five one. star ratings, people. <laughs> if you don't, if it's not a five, we don't want to hear it. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, so thank you everyone for listening. Be sure to follow us uh, at Unstuck Podcast One and all the social medias. Uh, we do have videos that we recorded. I'm just afraid to put them out there oh, at this point. And also I don't know how to edit. So and those are two things. And we do have some more um, interviews coming up in the summer. So hopefully yeah. we'll have some a variety, not we just have, our voices talking. We also printed some uh, stickers. We have stickers. We have stickers. Okay. So you may you see them contact out about us somewhere. So we can mail you a yeah. sticker. Is that what? <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and have a good day. Bye. Bye. Bye.